Religion. Well, religion over the centuries has earned itself a bad reputation. In fact, a lot of uh, ugly and evil deeds have certainly been perpetrated on innocent people in the name of religion. It's also true, however, that a lot of wonderful work has been accomplished over those same centuries in the name of religion. Countless numbers of people have had their lives improved, even saved in some cases, in the name of religion. Uh, Tremendous works of progress in art, advances in science and archaeology, innovations in the medical field, great social works have all been accomplished in the name of religion. And so I I think it's difficult to try and validate any claims that portray religion on its own on its own merit in an exclusively good or bad light. And that, that is a real point to be made here, that religion in and of itself is just religion. It is the, the ascription of behavior to some prescribed standard. And whether that standard is the Holy Bible, the Quran, uh, the New World Translation, the Book of Mormon or the Torah or just about any other religious text, you can find people under the auspices of any of those religions who behave admirably and you can find those who behave despicably. And so at the end of the day, we can talk about various religions as being either good or bad, but it's not the religion in and of itself that qualifies anyone as good or bad, as righteous or unrighteous, as holy or heathen. Religion alone is just a set of rules and practices. So it's not the religion. It's the God which that religion serves that defines good and evil, right and wrong, righteousness and unrighteousness. And so depending upon which God it is that is actually being served, religious behavior can be wielded for great good or great evil because all religions ultimately point to the God that they serve. Not to the same God, mind you. Okay, so understand, I'm not saying that all religions are equal. That is not at all what I'm saying. I'm simply pointing out that religion is just a mechanism. It is a means to an end, and that end is the God that that religion serves, whatever God it happens to serve. And there are are many false versions of that, right? There's a, a commonality, though, among all religions, that each religion, when practiced as prescribed, points back to its own God, whether it's the one true God or many false gods, depending on which religion you're devoted to. And so, of course, the Christian religion, as we know, points to Christ. The Quran points us to Allah. Some of the New Age religions point us back to ourselves. And so it's not our relationship to that religion that determines how we live. It's our relationship to the God that that religion serves that determines how we live. And so uh, this is very relevant in our culture today because I hear a lot of talk uh, about comparative religions. People who are exploring religions, trying to choose which religion fits them best, which religion it is that will help us to achieve balance in our lives, a sense of peace or uh, some level of fulfillment or a state of transcendence when what we should be comparing is the gods of those religions, not the religions themselves. Religions come from the teachings of people like Buddha and Muhammad and Joseph Smith and Confucius and Jesus. And of course, anyone can claim anything. 
right? Anybody can say anything and make it sound good, but how many of those people and others like them actually lived lives that backed up what they said, that validated their claims? I say that we take a step back from religion and take a long, hard look at the gods of those religions, the creators of those religions. When we do that, to me, it becomes very clear who actually has the answers to all of our questions and all of our needs and all of our inherent longings for things like balance and peace and fulfillment and transcendence. It is then that we can make an informed decision about which religion out of all of them actually represents the one true God who is righteous and sovereign and trustworthy and eternal. Okay, Buddha taught that nirvana, salvation, was attained through our own effort. He never claimed to overcome death through his own death or to offer life through his own life. He never claimed to be God, nor did he ever raise the dead, heal the sick, or cast out demons. What he did do was die at about 80 years old, and he stayed dead. Muhammad was a ruthless man of war who taught that Allah granted Muslims the right to have sex with their female captives and slave girls, even those who were still married, who were going to be sold or traded into slavery, including young children. And he died at about 62 or 63 years old, and he stayed dead as well. Joseph Smith said that he translated the Book of Mormon by divine revelation through a set of gold plates that he claimed had been buried for 1,400 years, except that the Book of Mormon contains at least 25,000 words that have been plagiarized from the King James English Bible, which is strange since the plates were supposed to have been in the ground centuries before the King James Bible was completed in 1611. And by the way, Joseph Smith died at 39 years old, and he stayed dead also. I could just go on and on and on with the false gods and founders of the many religions of the world, but at the end of the day, they all fall short. They all lived and died as mere human beings without any authority or power to ultimately alter or affect eternity in any way. And they also had no ability, once they died, to remain in a living and active relationship with their followers because when they died, they all stayed dead. But when you examine the life of Jesus Christ, you find someone who not only claimed to be divine, to be God in the flesh, but he backed those claims up by how he lived. He not only performed countless miracles witnessed by numerous people, But he also, being raised from the dead himself, according to many, many witnesses who recorded those events firsthand through all of these events and his life and death and resurrection, he validates his claims of divinity and his teachings. And then by ascending into heaven, whereby he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell within his followers, he made a way for us to continue to live in relationship with him even after he departed this earth. Not, not just in relationship with his teachings, like we would be with another religion, or his traditions, or another religion. And this is a key difference between Christianity and other religions. Christians follow Jesus Christ, who happens to be alive and well and in fellowship with his followers. All others follow a set of teachings from men who were an assortment of liars, 
pedophiles, plagiarizers, warmongers, and megalomaniacs. And even if you look at the best among them, there may have been some who were morally good men, but they were still just men. They lived and died and they stayed dead without any verifiable evidence to validate their claims or teachings, but not Jesus, because he's alive today, as much as he was then, and the evidence that validates his claims is overwhelming. We went through a lot of this in our series through Genesis a year or so ago. We have thousands of ancient writings, some from within 25 years of his life on earth, from first-hand witnesses like John and others that verify his life and his deeds, his teachings and his death and his resurrection. You know, the, the earliest written documents about the life of Buddha showed up about 500 years after his death. We have ancient writings by first century non-Christian historians and scholars, those who didn't follow Jesus, who witnessed and recorded the life and teachings of Christ that agree with our gospel accounts. They had no reason to make up those stories. They weren't even following him. Modern archaeology has made more discoveries than we could cover in a day to support many of the claims in the New Testament accounts of the Gospels. And so when we talk about religion, don't ever forget who or what that religion is pointing you to. Otherwise, we're simply worshiping a set of teachings or a set of rules or a set of traditions or all of the above without any relationship with the living God or with any God that that religion points to. So when it comes to religion, we should be asking, who does this religion point to? And what evidence is there to support the claims of that religion? That's a conversation worth having when you encounter those who are on a journey of religious discovery. And it's the conversation that Jesus happens to be having with the religious experts of his day as we continue our story this morning in the Gospel according to John. As we see Jesus being confronted by the most highly educated and devout religionists in Jerusalem. Those who had utterly devoted their lives to a canon of ancient scriptural writings, this vast set of rules and religious traditions that had been handed down for centuries. Men who were supposed to know everything that a person could possibly know about their religion, except that they completely missed the fact that every aspect of that religion was pointing them to the Son of God, even as he was standing there right in front of them. And so Jesus attempts to illuminate for them the truth about their religion, that the religion was designed to lead them into an ongoing relationship with a God that they didn't even recognize. And so as we pick up our story for today, take note of how Jesus uses the religion of the Jews to reveal his own identity as the object of their religion. And it's, it's important that we get this. The way that Jesus draws their focus of their religion back to him because this Christianity that we ascribe to is a religion that happens to be not about religion. It's about a relationship. It's a means to an end and that end is a real relationship with Jesus Christ who we serve. That's the whole point of it and that should come across, by the way, anytime we're engaged in conversation with others about religion. That should come out in the conversation. It should in fact be obvious. There should never be a shred of doubt in people's minds what we're about. Religion 
or relationship. Because at the end of the day, if our religion doesn't clearly point people toward a relationship with Jesus Christ, then we're missing it just as much as the religious leaders who are confronting Jesus in our story today. So let's jump in right where we left off last week at John chapter 5, starting with verse 18. And if you were here last Sunday, this is right after Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. And he's now being castigated, harshly confronted by the religious leaders there in Jerusalem. And Jesus responds to their interrogation about his activity on the Sabbath in verse 17 by saying, Hey, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. And so as we pick the story back up, verse 18 uh, here. Verse 18 says that this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even uh, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So infractions against the Sabbath laws, whether they were real or perceived, were extremely serious in Jesus' day. By claiming to be equal with God, which is what Jesus is doing by calling him his own father, uh, was a direct challenge to the fundamental distinction between the holy infinite creator God and a mere finite fallen human being as far as the Jewish leaders were concerned because they didn't recognize of course who Jesus actually was and they certainly didn't believe his claims to be the son of God and so for them this was blasphemy the very worst kind of blasphemy and so they're trying to figure out how to kill him and there are people today even serious students of religion who don't recognize the true identity of Jesus Christ as the son of the living God. But religion is not in and of itself supposed to be the object of our worship. And this is what Jesus is trying to teach these men. Let's keep reading verses 19 through 24. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show Will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. So Jesus drops all the subtleties here. And in one statement, he completely shatters the religious leaders understanding of the pathway to God because their entire lives, rather than being a religious pursuit of God, have been a relentless pursuit of religion. And Jesus says, the way to the Father is by me, the Son, not by your religious activity. When he says, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. He's telling them that they actually have to follow and worship him if their lives are to honor the God that they thought they were already serving. Why? Because he and the Father are one. And... And we think of this as a particularly Jewish problem, but it's not. In fact, it's just as prevalent in Western culture today as it was in Hebrew culture then. We just package it a little bit differently. Our culture tells people all the time 
that they can believe in anything they want to, that they can express their spirituality in any way they see fit, because in the end, we all worship the same God. And getting to Him involves more of a private, personal choice of any number of religious pathways rather than a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's a pluralistic approach to religion that says we can reject Jesus and still get to God, which is what these Jews believed as well. And Jesus says you cannot. You cannot honor the Father without honoring the Son. There is no other way. This was an unequivocal challenge to the long-held religious security that they were clinging to. And then in verse 24... He totally yanks the rug out from underneath them. Again, their their security was all wrapped up in their religious activity. And Jesus says, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. This was quite a statement to say to religious Jews in the first century. Jesus says, Religious activity cannot earn you eternal life once you die. In fact, he says it's quite the opposite. He says the possession of eternal life is a present reality for anyone who believes in me now. That is a sensational statement, a striking thing to say to a group of people who've devoted their entire existence to earning their salvation by way of their religious activity. This is like a bomb going off. And Jesus is just getting started. Let's keep reading verses 25 through 29. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus, in revealing to these Jewish men who he really is, explains that salvation doesn't come the way that they think it does. He's teaching them that religious activity cannot save you. Now they want to lecture him about his religious activity on the Sabbath and how that has violated the rules that govern their own activity. But Jesus turns the tables. He says, no, you don't get it. In fact, you're missing the entire point. First of all, all of your religious activity exists primarily to point people to me, the Son of God. It's it's not to make you righteous because there is no religious activity alone that can ever make you righteous. And so in verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. He's referring to the resurrection on the final day, which echoes uh, Daniel 12, 2, by the way. There are, in fact, uh, multiple references to the visions of Daniel in John's writing. And at first glance, it sounds like Jesus here is affirming the religious, uh, Jewish religious position that our religious activity can save us because he says those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment, but he's not because uh, of what he says in verse 25 that precedes this statement. He says an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's saying... Those people that respond to my voice will live. Salvation 
comes by me alone. And so in verses 28 and 29, he's describing the characteristics of those who have placed their faith in him already and those who have not. Our religious activity is not the source of our faith. It is rather the result of our faith. It is an indicator of our faith. And likewise, our evil deeds, as Jesus puts it, are an indicator of our lack of faith. We went through this concept in detail in our series through the book of James. James says more than once in his letter in chapter 2 that faith without works is dead. Not because our works, our religious activity earns us anything whatsoever in terms of our salvation. Because it does not. It's that genuine faith in Christ will produce good works in our lives, which is why James was able to say that without faith, uh, without faith works, excuse me, without works, uh, our faith is dead. Because if there are no works, there is no good spiritual fruit, as Jesus describes it, coming from our lives. If there's no good fruit coming from our lives, then there's no validation in our lives of a genuine faith. And so uh, there should be evidence of good spiritual fruit, good godly deeds, good works coming from those who profess faith in Christ. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their, what, their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. He says a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. I I've heard so many people say, you can't tell me if that person's a believer or not a believer. That's not for you to judge. Don't judge me. Leave me alone. And all those things that we like to say in our culture. It's not what Jesus said. You can tell them by their fruits. There are people who put on a good act. I get that. But he says you will recognize them by their fruits. So we shouldn't be defensive when a brother or sister in Christ questions our behavior. On the contrary, we should actually be very grateful for that because it gives us an opportunity to examine our own lives and either rectify the situation if need be, in which case our brother or sister has done us a great service by helping to lead us back to where we need to be in right relationship with God, or if it's not the case, we're able then to point to the good fruit in our lives and encourage that brother or sister to do the same. And so with that in mind, it actually wasn't wrong for these religious Jews to inquire about Jesus's activity on the Sabbath. This was a big deal for them. It wasn't wrong for them to ask him about his behavior. What was wrong was once he explained it to them for them to continue in their unbelief. Okay, ignorance isn't a sin. Choosing to remain in your unbelief once you've encountered Christ is big difference. And that was the case here. And Jesus knew exactly what was in their hearts. He knew that any claim that he made about himself being the son of God, the Messiah, would be weighed in their hearts and minds against their own idols, which in this case was their religious activity, which was more important to them than the God of their religion. And so in the next section of the story, Jesus systematically begins to dismantle their own religious perceptions. And then he reconstructs the picture for them to show them that their religion is actually designed and intended to point them to him. 
Let's continue reading verses 30 through 38. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. He's saying, can't you see what you're complaining to me about? It's pointing back to who who I am. And he says, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So first of all, in verse 31, when Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. The phrase I alone in the Greek there is the word ego. It's an emphatic. In other words, it's used to emphasize that he understands that his testimony is not to be considered true or valid if he bears witness to it alone without anyone else to corroborate his claims. He's not saying that he's unqualified to make his own claims about himself because as God in the flesh, he certainly is qualified. And in many other places in the Gospels, we find Jesus testifying alone about his mission and his work and his identity. And so to really understand his statement here, we have to understand the audience and their context of understanding when it comes to someone testifying about themselves alone. Okay, In the Old Testament, when capital crimes were committed, the accused were tried before the judges at the gates of the city. But before any death penalty could be handed down, at least two eyewitnesses had to testify to witnessing the crime and their testimonies had to completely agree with one another. They had to be perfectly corroborated. In fact, Establishing a true and accurate witness has been so important to God from the beginning that he included it in his top ten laws to his people. The ninth commandment of the Ten Commandments, of course, says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Exodus twenty sixteen. And so this idea of establishing an accurate and true witness was a really big deal in Jewish law. And Jesus, of course, knows that. Hence, his statement about bearing witness about himself alone. He's recognizing their need to have more than one witness to corroborate his own claims. And so what he does is brilliant. He appeals to their religious and legal sense of due process, and he proceeds to call two other witnesses to testify on his behalf. In verse 32, Jesus calls the Father as a witness. He says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. We know he's talking about the Father here because, uh, first of all, the word another in this verse is the Greek word alos, which means more or one another. And it was used in Greek literature to mean one in addition uh, to one already mentioned. And, And who was the one already mentioned? Well, Jesus makes this statement on the heels of verse 30, where he refers to the one who sent him, who is, of course, the Father. And then in verses 37 and 38, he says, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. 
His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So Jesus says, look, if you're not going to take my word for it, then you should accept the Father's testimony about me, even though he knows they don't. And yet, just so that we cover all of our bases here, just to be sure that your sense of Jewishness in this impromptu trial is completely satisfied, I will call yet another credible witness. Verses 33 and 34, Jesus says, You sent to John, and he bore witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. This is for your benefit, guys. Okay, Jesus points them to John the Baptist's testimony about him as a second witness, whose testimony, by the way, agrees completely with that of the Father's which satisfies the legal requirements to vindicate Jesus' own testimony before his accusers. It's brilliant how Jesus could take a conversation and pack so much into it. Just amazing. He's hitting all of the bases here. And then right in the middle of the case that he's building, he says something interesting that would have surely touched a nerve among the religious Jews, referring still to John the Baptist in verses 35 and 36. Jesus says, He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in His light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So after pointing out their affinity for John the Baptist, Jesus says, My own testimony is greater than that of John's testimony. And by the way, John wasn't wrong. So in addition to presenting his own case here, being sensitive to their religious context, Jesus is also pointing out to them that popular religious voices cannot save you. They put their trust in their religious activity. And they put a lot of stock in this John the Baptist, who was an exceedingly popular voice in their culture at this time. Okay, In truth, John the Baptist was far more popular. He was a far more famous figure among the people than Jesus was when this conversation was taking place. Every Jew in Israel had heard of John the Baptist. And up until Herod the Tetrarch lopped off his head, he was extremely popular among the people. And so they were willing to completely dismiss Jesus' testimony while at the same time following after John the Baptist and his teaching, not realizing that Jesus was the entire purpose and focus of all of John's work to begin with. And occasionally, I encounter other believers who are really turned on to a popular voice or pastor, a Christian speaker, maybe a Christian author, someone who's burst onto the scene and is making a name for himself with a fresh new message or a new way of looking at familiar passages of Scripture or a new take on the church, whatever, whatever it happens to be. And when you talk to them, it can seem like they just continually to quote that person over and over again. They comment on that person's teachings. They quote the new book and they follow after that person. They even make big decisions in their own lives and for their families based on what that person has said or written. In fact, I've had friends who would latch on to a new Christian book and for weeks or even months, it's as if that's all that they can talk about or reference, what this author says about this or that in their book or in their latest podcast or blog or whatever. And if we're not careful, we can end up like these religious Jews following whatever or whoever happens to be the popular religious voice at that moment, even more than we follow Jesus Christ, what he said 
what he taught, what he wrote through his followers. We can sometimes quote popular voices, I think, quicker and easier than we can quote Jesus himself. We can look to those people and their teaching for direction in life even more than we look to Jesus Christ for direction in our lives. It's not as if what those popular voices are saying or teaching or writing is even necessarily wrong. It's just that it shouldn't supplant what Jesus said and taught and wrote to us directly because his testimony is greater than all of theirs combined. This is what he's trying to say to these Jews. He says, look, you're pointing to what is popular, to John the Baptist, who's a great guy, by the way. But what you fail to recognize is that all of his teaching exists solely to lead you to me. His testimony is great, but mine is even greater, Jesus says. Those popular voices may be wonderful, but don't hang your hat or base your life decisions on what they say without first coming back to me and my word, because my testimony is greater than theirs. So learn from Christian scholars and authors and popular teachers, absolutely. Yes, I do often come here and study with me without a doubt, but don't ever allow any of that to be your sole source of input when it comes to God's direction and guidance in your own life. At some point in the midst of all of the other voices in your life, it is imperative that you get on your face before Almighty God and seek Him for yourself. Open his word and see what it says for yourself. Meditate on his word and his voice in your life for yourself and get that testimony directly from him. And then all those other popular voices can help bring clarity and understanding for certain, but they should never take the place of seeking his word directly for ourselves, okay? Now then, Jesus, knowing how these very devout, Religious men think doesn't stop here because he understands that religion in and of itself is their God. And yet he wants them to see that religion is merely a means to an end. And so he continues to apply pressure to their most sensitive religious sensibilities. Let's keep reading verses 39 through 44. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So it's getting serious now. Jesus explains to them that their religious activity cannot save them. And then he points out the fact that popular religious voices of the day cannot save them. And now he takes the conversation to an entirely new level. He says, even your religious scriptures cannot save you. Which is an especially provocative thing to say. Because remember, Jesus wasn't talking to liberal, progressive universalists or left-wing secularists. These were devout religious Jews from a cultural standpoint uh, it's sort of the equivalent today in our western culture of hyper-conservative fundamentalist King James 1611 version only very traditional church-going 
Christians. And it's just as if Jesus says to them, look, you go to a Bible-centered church on Sunday morning, on Sunday night, and on Wednesday night. You have Friday evening Bible studies every week. You read through the Bible every single year, and every morning you spend time memorizing Scripture. And yet you think that's where your salvation lies, but it doesn't. Because the scriptures are only a means to an end. They are meant to lead you to me. So should we read scripture? Of course. Should we study scripture? Absolutely. Should we memorize scripture? Yes, we should. Should we meditate on scripture? Without a doubt. But when we allow ourselves to believe that our salvation is achieved by reading and studying and memorizing and meditating on this book, then we're reading and studying and memorizing and meditating without understanding, which is nothing new. It was prophesied in Isaiah 6, 9 and 10 and quoted in the Gospels by Jesus himself, including Matthew chapter 13. In verses 14 and 15, he said, you will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn. And I would heal them. See, we, we can learn all about God and never know Him. We can study the Holy Scriptures and attain much in the way of understanding and knowledge and never have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I met professors in seminary who had more understanding of Scripture in their pinky finger than I'll ever have in my whole body the rest of my life, and I am pretty sure they had no relationship with Jesus Christ. Lost as a goose. I'll tell you, no one is more in danger of what we're talking about here than pastors who love to study and teach the Word of God. Teaching His Word is one of the greatest joys and passions of my life. I just don't ever grow tired of it. But I have to be careful that the learning and the research and the writing and the teaching doesn't become an idol in my own life. Because if I learn all that there is to learn about the Scriptures and miss Jesus... And I've missed everything. And that is exactly what he was saying to these religious Jews. How is it that you can read and study and memorize and meditate on the scriptures and not believe in me? How can that be? The scriptures are a profound gift from God to us. But if they don't lead us to Jesus, then we have missed everything. Let's finish our story for today. Verse 45 to the end of the chapter as Jesus drops a nuclear bomb on the religious uh, arguments of their day. Okay, verses 45 to the end. He says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? Now, if these Jews thought that his arguments were contentious up to this point, they haven't seen anything until these final two verses of chapter 5. These are fighting words. Jesus turns the heat up about as high 
as you can on a devout religious Jew. There was no one more highly esteemed in the religious Jewish culture than Moses. The one who led their people out of captivity, the mediator of the Sinai covenant, the one through whom God gave them the law that they so highly venerated, that they so highly revered. Their tradition and their way of life was given to them through Moses. In fact, Moses was held in such high regard that some of the Jews in that day believed that he continued serving as a mediating intercessor who prayed for them in heaven just as he prayed for them on earth as he had led them through the wilderness. Now, who does that sound like? They replaced the Messiah, Christ, with their worship of Moses and his tradition. Next to God, Moses was of the highest religious order for the Jews. And in verse 45, Jesus says, you've set your hope on the wrong guy. After explaining to them that their religious activity and popular religious voices of their day and religious scriptures cannot save them, he pulls the Moses card. And the one who handed them their most esteemed traditions. And Jesus explains that your religious traditions cannot save you. Once again, you've set your hope on the wrong thing. And in the same fashion, he explains to them that if they really understood the message infused in their religious activity and the work of John the Baptist and interwoven throughout the scriptures, that, that they would clearly see Jesus, that they would clearly see him as the focus of all of it. In the same way, he says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But they pinned their hope on Moses and all of the tradition that came out of that instead of on the one about whom Moses wrote. And I can almost picture the blank stares on these religious people's faces as Jesus was confronting their undying devotion to their religion, while at the same time their souls were dying for a lack of faith in the one that their religion was pointing them to. It's preposterous if you think about it. R.C. Sproul, referring to these verses from the perspective of Jesus, writes, You exalt the Torah, the writings of Moses, but don't you understand that when he described the tabernacle, he was describing me? Don't you understand that when Moses said in Deuteronomy that there would come another prophet like him, he was referring to me? If you don't believe Moses' teachings, how are you going to believe mine? But they had placed their faith in religion instead of the one that their religion was pointing them to. It, it seems so incredulous, and yet the exact same phenomenon is just as prevalent in our churches today. There are people who have become so enamored with religious activities and popular religious voices, and the study of the scriptures, and the traditions that they're accustomed to, that they completely miss Jesus Christ in the process. And although all of those things are good, they're really good, and can be wonderful tools at our disposal for gaining a deeper understanding and a closer walk with our Savior, if all of those wonderful religious pursuits are devoid of a real relationship with Jesus Christ, then they are all, every one of them, utterly worthless. Worthless. They mean absolutely nothing if they don't lead us to Jesus Christ. So what is it exactly that keeps us from allowing our religion to lead us to Jesus? Well, he explains it back in verse 40. He says, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, no one's pulling the wool over our eyes. Right? There isn't some secret decoder ring that we have to get before we can find the evidence of Christ 
in our religion, there's never been a lack of evidence. The evidence is everywhere. The simple truth for why so many people have religion without relationship is a willful act, a very intentional refusal to give up ourselves, our pursuit of self, in deference to a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we pursue religion instead because it provides us with some modicum of security, albeit a false security. Makes us feel good. Makes us feel pious. It's, it's not a lack of proof. At the end of the day, it's a lack of desire to, what have, to, to have what he has freely offered us. Why? Because of the cost involved in having a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And I hear people say, there is no cost involved, friend. It's a free gift. Well, that's true. The gift of salvation is absolutely a free gift, on our part at least. It wasn't free for him. But everything after that, the following of Christ after that, is going to cost you everything. All that you have and all that you are and all that you ever hope to be, you have to give it all to him. Jay Burns wrote, they may come to Jesus just as they are, but they cannot abide with Jesus just as they are. You see, that's why Jesus said, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That's why the rich young ruler walked away sad from Jesus' invitation to follow him because of the cost involved. We can come to Christ just as we are, but we cannot remain in him just as we are. And it's time for us to get real with ourselves and with other people about that. About religion and what true religion is, which equates to a real relationship with Jesus what that costs us, but then also what we gain because of it. I often find people, particularly once they realize that I'm a pastor, want to have conversations about religion. And that's okay, I guess. But I'd much rather have a conversation about Jesus. And so it's often the focus of my effort in those conversations, those times when people want to talk about religion, that I continually try to direct the conversation back to Jesus Christ and my relationship with him, my testimony to who he is and what he's done in my life, the evidence that he is real and alive and that I am in fellowship with the God of my religion. I don't want to talk about the religion part. I'd rather talk about him because he's the reason for our religion. He's the focus of our religion. And he does what no religion could ever do on its own. He saves. He transforms. He heals. He provides. He restores. He gives our lives meaning and purpose. He gives us peace and joy and fulfillment there is no religion that could ever accomplish that. Only Jesus Christ can do that. That's what we should be talking about. That's who we live for. That's why we do all of this. So what are we pursuing? A religion or relationship.
Let's pray.